Well, good morning. Like uh, Jan said, next week we are going to be starting uh, through the book of Philippians. This week we're finishing up uh, a series that uh, David and I have been doing, just on talking about some of the things that we've been struggling with in our own lives, sharing from Scripture uh, uh, the life of someone who has dealt with it, that can show us the way. I'm glad we are getting to the end of that series before I say too much about myself, but uh, this week uh, we're going to finish up that that series for now. Now, last uh, week I was reading from uh, Larry Crabb's latest book, Finding God, and I read this paragraph. I want you to hear it. We have learned to praise God the way we tip a specially attentive waiter. Good treatment we expect, but exceptional treatment deserves special recognition. When we praise Him, we feel we have left a big tip and feel particularly benevolent and noble about ourselves, while He in turn beams with humble appreciation as He hears us say, Well done, you have served well. Then Crab goes on to say, Our hunger does not obligate God. He is not a waiter who at the snap of our fingers runs out of heaven's kitchen loaded down with trays of food to fill our empty stomachs. With his blood, Christ purchased a people for God and made us priests to serve him. We exist for him, not the other way around. I am not the point. He is. You know, after I read that, I uh, stopped and thought for a while. And I realized that even though I don't view God that way, I mean, I, I, theologically I'm better oriented than that. When it comes down to the way I treat him, I do treat him like a waiter. There to wait on my needs. You know, I know that God cares about every detail of my life. But somehow I jump from there to thinking that it is his job to smooth out every detail, to, to, to uh, make sure nothing is difficult or, or hard or painful. And if that doesn't happen, I get annoyed. I'm bothered. He's not doing his job. You know, if I can't find a parking place, I get frustrated. Or when someone hurts me, or as, as I keep dealing with those sins I should have been done with long ago, I found myself uh, raging and ranting and you know, almost at times violently angry at God for not serving me better. This morning I want to look at a character in Mark chapter 5 who demonstrates a different way of relating to God. I want to look at Jairus. He's an interesting fellow. John, or Mark 5, starting with about verse 21. It's in the second half of the chapter here. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Now, a little earlier in Mark, we're told that Jesus just wanted to get away from the crowds. He wanted some breathing space. He wanted some time alone with his disciples. So they crossed over the Sea of Galilee to get away and dealt with some things that happened over there. Now they're coming back. And as soon as they get back, the crowds are waiting again, wanting to see what new and amazing thing this Jesus will do. Well, in the crowd is a guy named Jairus. 
And he comes up to Jesus and he pleads for Jesus to, to heal his daughter. Jesus goes with him. Now this all seems very straightforward. But we're also told that Jairus was a synagogue ruler, a ruler of the synagogue. And I want you to, to, to realize what that means. The, the ruler of the synagogue was the most influential, important person in their community. Back in Jerusalem, they had the Sanhedrin and the, and the high priests. And they were the core of the central government. But as you went out into the towns and the villages and the cities, the number one person was the ruler of the synagogue. He was almost always a very wealthy man, very influential man. He made the decisions about what would happen in the synagogue, who would be allowed to speak. And the synagogue was the center of civic and religious and social life. So this was a very important man that had come to Jesus. Now think about what this guy had to overcome to come to Jesus. The the leaders in Jerusalem had already decided that Jesus was the enemy. He needed to be eliminated. They had accused him of being demon-possessed. They were even plotting his death. And for Jairus to associate with Jesus was to become suspect by the leadership of the country and perhaps even lose his position. Jairus had to to overcome his own prejudice, no doubt, in coming to Jesus. As part of the religious establishment, Jesus was the, the, the enemy. He was in danger of undermining the religious establishment. And Jairus had probably learned to view everything Jesus did with suspicion. Jairus had to overcome his pride. Here he was at the top of the heap, the most important man in the city. And this Jesus, he's a nobody. He's a Johnny come lately. He's not even part of the synagogue leadership. Jairus had to overcome his, his concern about peer pressure. You know, what is his family and his friends and the guys he works with, what are they going to all think about him? They're going to resent his defection. They're going to, they're going to look down on him as a, as a pitiful fool for getting involved with this weird fringe cult and, and, and becoming a religious fanatic. Jairus had to, to overcome his dignity. Here is this wealthy, elegant man in his pinstriped robe falling on the ground before Jesus. A common laborer, a carpenter in his rough denim robe. You see, Jairus had to overcome all of these obstacles in order to come to Jesus. But Jairus had some help. His little girl was dying. The, the term he uses there, my baby girl. The, the girl is 12 years old, but he calls her my baby girl. And I still call my daughters that, even though they're a long ways from babies. They're still precious to me. I still view them as my baby girls. And, and that's the way he looked at his daughter. And he said, Jesus, my baby girl is dying. See, that gives us one of our first clues to suffering. This guy had tried everything. He had been to everyone. He uh, was at the end of himself. Coming to Jesus because there was nowhere else to go. In a time like this, he realized that his pride, his dignity, his social status, what everybody thought about him, didn't matter at all. All the stuff that he had lived for and treated of as valuable, the things that he had gone after in life, he now saw them as trash to be thrown away. See, that's a, a, a clue, or our first clue to what suffering is all about. Here's a guy who's on the top of the heap. No needs. They've got everything under control. Life's going well. How's he ever going to see his need for God? 
How's he ever going to come and confront the things that he's pursuing in life aren't going to fulfill, aren't going to be what his heart aches for? You see, misery is often second best to ultimate fulfillment, far better than the, the, the distracting and unfulfilling little pleasures that we seek, the pride that we go after, the reputation that we, that we pursue. George MacDonald said, If thou art not willing that God should have his way with thee, then in the name of God be miserable, till thy misery drive thee to the arms of the Father. You see, often our difficulties, our hurt, our suffering, really is the expression of God's grace. Because there's nothing else that would get us over those high hurdles to face our need for God, to deal with God honestly. Now, never think that God enjoys our pain, that he, he likes to inflict. Now, God feels our pain with us. He goes through it with us. But He's willing to hurt with us, loving us in the midst of it, because He wants for us that greater good, that, 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 that more profound peace, that deeper joy that can only come from Him. And don't be confused, this type of suffering does not come directly from his hand. He's not the author of pain and misery. All the things that that happen in our lives, the disease, the hurt, the broken families, the teenage rebellion, the the, the, the addictions, the, the, the things that we go through that cause us such grief and pain, these things all bear the mark of the enemy, not of our Father. But having said that, I I don't excuse him. He is still sovereign. He is still God. He is still in control. And nothing comes into our lives that he does not allow. I uh, was talking to somebody last week, and they told me about a tribe of Indians in Central America who uh, worship the evil spirits. When a missionary came to them and told them about the good spirit, they said, we know about him, but we don't have to worry about him. He's good. It's the evil spirits that hurt us. That's why we focus on them. That's why we try to appease them. They say they didn't realize that the good spirit, that God is sovereign, that he's in control. That even though he doesn't author these things, these things are not by his His creation. He's still in charge of what happens in our lives. And it's still to him that we go. Because he is sovereign and because he can rescue us in the midst of these things. Now the sad truth is that most of us will never face our need for Him until we have to. We will do everything we can to maintain our our quiet independence and rebellion from God. We will give Him lip service. We will thank the good Lord as as a somewhat superficial expression of our humility. We go to church, we sing the songs, but deep down, when it comes down to it, we're still convinced that we know best, we know better, that we can still do a better job of running our lives, that we don't really need Him. And it's not until we come up against something that we can't handle, until we hit the wall, until we confront something that's so far out of our control that we realize that we've never been in control in the first place. And it's then that we face our inadequacy and our need for Him. 
And one of the things that we see frequently on staff here as we do marriage counseling is how frequently the men that we are counseling refused to acknowledge, to recognize that their marriage is disintegrating until things have gotten to the point that their wives have despaired, have given up, are walking for the door. And then they wake up and they realize the games that they've been playing, pretending everything's okay, trying to make it look like everything's under control. And really there's been no communication, no true intimacy. Things are so far from being under control, they don't even know what the problem is, much less how to solve it. They're lost and confused. Fortunately, at these times, many men face their need for God, come to Him, humbled, ready to let Him be their Lord. Unfortunately, sometimes it's too late to save the marriage. Can't tell you how many of my friends who've been through divorce tell me that as horrible and as painful and as destructive as that that, that uh, experience was for them, that was the time that they first took their need for God seriously. And though they would never want to go through that again, and they would never wish that on anyone, they look at that as God's grace to bring them where their hearts belong in that relationship. With him. The other day I was talking to a man who told me that uh, he had never felt a need for God. Uh, he went to church, but God was really pretty much for his wife and children. He had more important things to give his attention to. And as he lay there in the pre-op waiting to be rolled in for surgery, he admitted he needed God. Nobody else could go in there with him. This was out of his control. Another couple told me that they had never felt any need for God. They were good people. They were both very successful people. But it wasn't until their teenage son went into rebellion that they just could not understand. They couldn't get a grip on it because they didn't know where it was coming from and why it was happening. And nothing they did seemed to soften it or stop it or pull him back or or let him know how much they loved him. They found in that confusion, in that pain, the freedom of admitting that they couldn't handle it. The freedom of turning their lives over to Christ. Again, I could go on and on about people, friends who've lost their job, people dealing with, with, with addictive behaviors that they just can't control, people going through uh, revelations of abuse in their past and so confused and hurt and all the different things that take us through such pain, such horror. These things are horrible. But each one of these has been an avenue that God has used to bring someone to himself. And those people look at these things as expressions of God's grace, his severe mercy. And one of the things of which I am sadly certain is that there are a number of you sitting here this morning listening to me who are still letting your pride get in the way. You're still worried about what your family and friends and the guys you work with would think if you got too far into this religious stuff, they might think you're a religious fanatic. Kind of went off the deep end. Or you've thought about it and you realize that to give God control of your life would be a rip-off. It would be so funless and joyless. You just don't want that. Or maybe uh, maybe you're... you're uh, 
trying to live the good Christian life. You're doing it all, but you don't, you haven't come to the point where you've realized that you cannot, that He must live it through you, His Spirit in you. If that's where you are, I pray for you. But you probably don't like what I pray. Because what I pray is that God would bring you to the end of yourself. That you would uh, would hit the wall. That you would become miserable until you turned to Him. Until you faced your need for Him. Until you gave Him control of your life. Because otherwise you're going to miss life. You're going to settle for a, 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 a quiet despair, a, an empty shallowness, rather than life as Jesus came to give it. Let me encourage you. You don't have to wait for your world to crumble out from underneath you. You can turn to him right now. You're not a dumb mule that needs to get hit in the head with a two-by-four to stop and turn around. Stop and turn around. Turn to him. Tell him that you need him. That you want him. That you can't do it without him. Give your life to him and listen to what he says. You won't have to wait long is my guess. He'll point out some relationship that needs mending. Some, uh, uh, but you need to ask forgiveness of. Some secret thing in your life that you need to throw away. Some obligation you need to fulfill. Well, listen to Him. And obey Him. Demonstrate to yourself as well as to Him that you really have given Him the control of your life. And if you're going through some suffering right now, and I know a lot of you are, don't resist Him. Uh, all suffering is not the result of resisting God. Just because you're suffering, it doesn't mean you haven't given God control or that you're doing something wrong. You don't have enough faith. That's not what all suffering is about. But all suffering is an opportunity to draw close to God. And if you are suffering because you are resisting Him, in the midst of your suffering, you're shaking your fist at God, stop. Pull out the white flag. You know, our uh, nation is known for its generosity toward the nations that we defeat in war. But the Marshall Plan is nothing compared to the generous plan that your loving Father has for His surrendering child. It's His love that drives Him to drive you through some of the most painful things in your life. Don't stiffen. If He didn't love you, He'd just let you go. He'd let you prosper apart from Him. Let you live with that emptiness. Never facing that emptiness until it was too late. Don't curse Him for His love. Be like Jairus. Come to Him. Fall on your face before Him. This was not a, a negotiated settlement. This was an absolute, total, and unconditional surrender. He laid on his face before the Lord. And that's the opportunity that you have this morning. Well, one warning. Don't expect that once you've done that, that everything suddenly becomes smooth waters. I mean, if I were Jairus, that's what I would have thought. That's not what happened in his life. Verse 24, 
A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see people crowding against you, his disciples answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, Jairus was an important man. He was an, uh, a very influential man, a dignified man. And he had come and he had humbled himself before Jesus. This was an emergency. He said, my baby's dying. Jesus was going with them. And as they're working their way through the crowd and realized uh, the, the anxiety that must have been welling up in, in, in Jairus, he knew his daughter was going to die any minute. And he had to get Jesus there. And he was probably pushing people out of the way and saying, come on, Jesus, come on, Jesus. And Jesus stops. And he turns around and he said, who touched me? And the disciples, who are very impressed that this important man has come to Jesus, they're finally getting some recognition here. They're, they're starting to move up in the world. They say, Jesus, what are you talking about? People are knocking into you from all over the place. What do you mean, who touched me? Come on, Jesus, let's go. Get real, Jesus. Jesus stands there and he waits. He looks around. Again, think of poor Jairus. His heart must have been in his chest right now. And then this woman comes up. Jesus falls at his feet, tells him what happened. Now, this woman had a lot of obstacles to overcome herself. I would like at some point to study her. If we had time, I'd love to do that this morning, but we don't. But see, this woman had suffered for 12 years waiting for God to heal her, and he hadn't. And it wasn't just the discomfort of a 12-year of a vaginal hemorrhage like a 12-year menstrual period. It wasn't just that, but that particular malady would have meant in their society that she was religiously, ritually unclean. She couldn't uh, just be involved with the rest of the people in her society. She couldn't go to worship. She couldn't be around people. You know, who knows what misery and pain the last 12 years as this woman went to every doctor she could find, spent all of her money, was ostracized, was felt cut off from her family and friends. But even after 12 years, she hadn't given up hope. She was still looking. She snuck up behind Jesus and she touched the hem of his robe. And immediately she knew something had happened, that she was healed. See, if God had taken away her suffering 12 years before, she may have stopped looking. She may never have found the one who could not only heal her physically, could not only meet her physical needs, but her deeper needs as well. See, Jesus could have just kept going. She touched him. She was healed. That could have been the end of it. He didn't even need to break his stride. He could have kept on going through the crowd. But Jesus was not satisfied just meeting her physical needs. He stopped and he turned to her. See, he realized that she had enough faith to believe that he could heal her physically. But she did not have enough faith to believe that he could love her 
and accept her as unacceptable and as unworthy and defiled as she was. See, he was a rabbi. He was a holy man. And and she was unclean. Her expectation was that he would be indignant at her intrusion. she, She would have just defiled him. He would have resented it. But what she discovers is that he's not annoyed. He's pleased. He's not uh, looking down on her. He's delighted with her. See, if Jesus had just kept going, this poor woman would have gone through the rest of her life thinking she'd snuck something from him. She'd stolen something. She would have dealt with that guilt all of her life and never have known the deeper healing of Jesus accepting her just exactly the way she was. This woman's problem wasn't pride. This woman's impediment to coming to Jesus was her sense of unworthiness. And so many people don't come to Jesus because they don't feel worthy. They think that that somehow they, they have to get their lives together. They have to clean up their act before they can come to Jesus. But how silly. You know, what doctor will only see you after you've cured yourself? What's the value in a doctor like that? Jesus is a savior. He saves us. And if we need saving is when we need to come to him. He accepts us exactly the way that we are. He accepts you exactly the way you are with all of the gross habits that you still have in your life, the sin that you struggle with, the, 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 the insecurities the weaknesses, the desires, all of that stuff. He loves you just as you are. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. That's all he's looking for. For you to face the fact that you need him. Anyway, I want to get back to Jairus. What do you think he must have been going through at this time? And here he had come to Jesus. He had humbled himself. And Jesus stopped and he talks to this poor person, this social outcast, this woman. Where here's Jairus, an important, influential man. And besides, this woman has had this problem for 12 years. It could wait. His little girl couldn't. She's dying. And I would have bit through my lip. I I would have been so frustrated. I would have been so angry that Jesus was treating me that way. So careless about my needs. But Jairus doesn't. Now you expect things to get better. But Jairus humbled himself. Shouldn't it be better? Well, look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler, Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Why annoy Jesus anymore? The the term for bother there means to harass or annoy or inconvenience. Don't inconvenience him anymore. It's not doing you any good. You've wasted your time. Forget about him. Jesus says, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus said, listen, don't let your fear overwhelm your trust in me. Keep trusting me. Hang in there. I can't think of a real good reason why Jairus should. I mean, his girl's dead. 
the thing that he feared the most happened. See, that's where the mystery of grace starts. It's so hard to see from the outside when you're not Jairus. But when you're in Jairus' shoes, you experience that mystery of grace. Often, the way God frees us from the things that frighten us, that we're afraid of, is not by removing the things that scare us, but taking us right through them. And in the midst of that, we discover an almost incomprehensible, inexpressible peace and freedom from fear. It's gone. And we know that God is in control. I believe in that process. Jairus exhibits exactly the kind of faith, trust that I want. Now, he doesn't just turn and walk away. He doesn't blow up in anger. He doesn't demand to know why Jesus did what he did. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, trust me. Jairus keeps walking. Keeps following Jesus. See, and that's what happens. When it comes down to it, when our world's crumbling under our feet, and we don't understand why, and we feel like it's gone too far, it's hopeless, it's over with, the game's up, Jesus has ignored us too long, he looks us in the eye, and he says, don't let your fear overwhelm your trust. Keep trusting me. Hang in there. And what he calls us to do is to just keep walking with him. Keep following him. I believe in the midst of that process, Jairus was transformed. In his book, Waiting, Ben Patterson says, Waiting is not just the thing we have to do until we get what we hope for. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what we hope for. You see, in having to wait for Jesus, Jairus has burned out of him any last vestiges of a demanding spirit, any last vestiges of our 90s delusion that God exists to make us feel good about ourselves, that his purpose is our convenience. See, Jairus is freed, transformed by the severe mercy of God. God has radically changed Jairus. Now, in uh, a lot of ways, I would have been more comfortable if the story had ended here. It doesn't. Verse 37. Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave them strict orders not to let anyone know about this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Now let me make a couple of quick observations about this. When Jesus came in and found them crying and wailing, told them, I said, well, what are you crying about? Jesus is not being scornful of grief and of pain. He would never do that. When, when he comes up to Martha, when she's crying over her brother's death, it breaks Jesus' heart. He weeps with her. 
But see, these people were putting on a show. They were showing this important man how sympathetic they were. They were wailing loudly. The word used here is for a commotion. You can see how superficial it is by how quickly it turns into derisive laughter and ridicule against Jesus. So Jesus gets rid of these people. And he takes the mother and father and the disciples in there. Takes the little girl by the hand and he says, Talitha kum. Now that's not magic words. That's Aramaic, the language that Jesus and his disciples used. That was their, their first language, the language they talked to each other in. And what's going on here is that Peter, who's telling this story to Mark, who wrote it down for us, when he gets to this point in, in, in telling this story, he can just hear Jesus in his mind saying those words. And so he reverts from the Greek back to the Aramaic. And he can picture in his mind's eye Jesus taking that little girl by the hand and saying, Talitha kum. And he can feel the astonishment and, and just the wondrous joy of those parents hugging their little girl. Now the uh, reason that I said that I would uh, been more comfortable had the story ended a little bit before is that in my experience very rare that the little girl gets up, that Jesus heals her radically. I've seen it happen, and it's wonderful when it does, that, that, that God does a miracle of healing. It's a delight, but it's the exception. Usually the girl dies. She stays dead. In some ways, this almost feels like a, a, a TV show where everything has to be resolved in a half hour, and everybody's happy, and nobody's really hurt. That's not real life. I know that what Jesus is doing, he's doing out of his compassion, his love for Jairus. He loves Jairus and wants Jairus to, to know who he is. You see, and as Jairus trusts him when it seems too late, when it seems ridiculous to trust him, Jesus goes ahead and he shows something about himself to Jairus. And see, that's always God's design. When we're forced to wait for him, his hunger, his heart is to show us something about who he is, how he loves us. Patterson put it in this book that I was mentioning when he's talking about Abraham and Sarah's long and painful wait for a child. He says, take art, you who wait. What God did for Abraham and Sarah, he does for all who wait for him. He is for you and not against you. He feels your ache. He hears your groaning. And note, if he is silent now, as he was for so many years with Abraham and Sarah, it is the silence of his higher thoughts. He is up to something so big and so unimaginably good that your mind cannot contain it. But how do we hold on in the meantime? When it feels like he's blowing it, when like it must have felt to Jairus, Jesus had ignored our needs too long. It's over with. There's no hope. When those times all that we have is faith. Jesus looks us in the eye and he says, don't let your fear overwhelm you. Keep trusting me. And we can believe his word. A passage like this does not tell us he's always going to give us what we're, we're, we're so desperately wanting here and now. But it does tell us that he'll never turn away any who come to him, that he loves us. And that even though the, our frustration and our, our confusion and our, our sense of, of struggle 
difficulty may grow intense if we trust Him, our experience of His grace grows intense as well. His character never changes. He will always be compassionate, kind, loving, tender. But what that character leads Him to do in each situation, we can't predict. Quite honestly, I don't know why He chooses to heal some and not others of disease and sickness. Sometimes that's uh, troublesome to me. It confuses me. I want prayer for healing to always work, but it doesn't. Still, I know that He is good, and I know that His grace can take us through anything. And you see, this is what I long for. To deal with, to, to, to respond to the frustrations of life. Not by getting angry with God and frustrated with God because He doesn't serve me better. But by viewing every one of those disappointments, those hurts, the, the struggles, the difficulties of life as an opportunity to know this God whom we serve better. To trust Him more completely. To walk with Him more closely. Let me end with a, just a brief story and a quote. About four years ago, I was talking to a man whose wife was dying of cancer. And he was absolutely convinced that God was going to raise her back to life. And he told everyone in the hospital this. He was convinced from this passage that we've studied here this morning, if he would only believe enough, she would, come, she would be raised out of that, that hospital bed. He refused to accept even the possibility that she was going to die. And on the morning that his wife died, a very wise and sensitive nurse tenderly told him, Jesus did heal her. He has raised her. She stands before him now, healthy and whole. The quote is from George MacDonald. What if the main object in God's idea of prayer be the supplying of our great need, our endless need, the need of himself? What if the good of all our smaller and lower needs lies in this, that they help to drive us to God? Hunger may drive a runaway child home, and he may or may not be fed at once, but he needs his mother more than his dinner. Communion with God is the one need beyond all other need. Prayer is the beginning of that communion, and some need is what drives us to prayer. Our wants are for the sake of our coming into communion with our God, our eternal need. Let's pray. Lord, I uh, just confess that I don't often understand the things you take me through. I don't understand the suffering that I see people I love going through, people in this body. It confuses me sometimes, and I don't know what to say. Lord, help each of us to trust you, to not let our fear overwhelm us, but to trust you and to keep walking and to see what it is that you have to give us in the midst of that, to experience your intense mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that as we walk together, that you would do whatever it takes to draw us as individuals and us as a church to really be your servants, serving you with our whole heart, with all of our lives. Amen.